Hi, and welcome to the Imperfect Podcast. My name is Deb Crow, and I will be your host. Join me on this journey as we meet heart-centered leaders from all over the globe. Lots of interesting questions, interesting conversation, and find out what makes a leader. How do they handle uncertainty and complexity? How do they lead in a time that is volatile? Join us. Welcome back to Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. And I had mentioned over the last couple of episodes that in my own city of London, Ontario, Canada, there are so many heart-centered leaders that I wanted to reach out and interview and introduce you to. Our little podcast is now in 42 countries around the world. And if I can share a little bit more of my city and another heart-centered leader, that is bringing me great joy. And you never know who you're going to meet on the podcast because heart-centered leadership is in every sector across the globe. So today I want to introduce you to talk to Dr. Colin Dombrowski. Colin has a really interesting story that we're going to talk about, but he's all about feet. He's all about foot orthotics. He started school in marketing and then he did a pivot and then he transitioned to the University of Western Ontario. And I believe his academic journey unpacked in a way that he didn't think would happen otherwise. He's got a very unique story and he now has his PhD in health and rehabilitation science. And with my background in disability case management and now being an executive coach and also a yoga teacher, you're going to be in for a treat because we're going to have a great conversation. So Dr. Colin, welcome to Imperfect. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast. Colin, you are a man of many talents and many strengths, and I just can't wait to jump into my leadership questions. So if you're ready, I'm ready to jump in. Let's do this. With both feet. There's my pun. (laughs) When I was doing my research, I kept feeling your heart-centered leadership, you're a community builder, you're a philanthropist. I knew there was a story. And I realized that you were originally in school for marketing. And then I came to understand that you had a hip reconstruction at the age of 17. So I'm thinking the end of high school. Mm -hmm. And you were trying to figure out ways to learn to cope with having one leg shorter than the other. So share with us at the tender age of 17, where did that grit and that vision come to pivot that landed you up on your journey at the University of Western Ontario? Wow, that's going to be a long answer, but I'll try to do my best to keep it as concise as possible. You know, when I was young, I didn't have a ton of focus. I had a lot of passion, not a lot of focus. So, you know, my greatest ambition when I was in my teens was to own a Volkswagen Westphalia that was heated by propane so I could live in the parking lot of whatever ski or mountain bike facility that I was going to be in at the time. And I really thought that I was going to be a professional downhill mountain biker for you know, or skier and, and be involved in that community and in that business for most of my life, right? 
Well, unfortunately, life has a funny way of, of changing your plans. And by the time I was 16, 17, I had so much pain in my hip. I just couldn't function. I wasn't able to run anymore. Walking was difficult. Training was hard. And it turned out that I have a congenital form of arthritis called avascular necrosis, which basically means that you know, by the, by the age of 17, I had the kind of arthritis you would get in your 60s or 70s that would require a hip replacement. Well, I was just too young for a hip replacement. And the surgeon at the time at Toronto Western Hospital, his name is Rod Davey, and the guy's awesome. You know, he gave me a few options. And I mean, when I say me, he gave my mom a few options because I was just too young to really know. And they, they decided on a joint saving surgery instead of a replacement, because at the time, you know, replacements didn't last you longer than 20 years. And I was 17. I, you know, they, they said it could last you two years. It could last you 10 years. We're not exactly sure, but we'll do our best. Oh, and by the way, don't mountain bike anymore. So you can imagine that, you know, for somebody who showed up there in like a psychopath jersey and like ready to go and like this was my life, it was devastating. And I didn't necessarily listen, so <laughs> I, I got the surgery, wound up with this large discrepancy in my leg length, which I didn't really know at the time, and struggled for a while to get back to activity comfortably. And it wasn't until the gentleman who was my next door neighbor at the time happened to be a podorthist and happened to figure out that I had this discrepancy. And it was really him that got me back to activity. Now, unfortunately, getting me back to activity at 17 when I'm like, oh, yeah, I know more than the surgeon. Of course I can. I'll start riding my bike again. And I did that. And then I ended up messing up uh, some of the surgery and had to have a revision done and hardware removal and a whole bunch of things. So I've had a, a couple of hip surgeries at this point. And now it's at the point where it's in both my hips. Both of them need to be replaced. I'm just too young. I'm 42 at this point. I really want to put it off as long as I can. Um, and that got me down to really understand what I wanted to do when I saw how much my life changed when my neighbor was able to get me back to, to activity. So uh, I left college two months before I was going to graduate that uh, sports marketing diploma. And uh, my parents freaked out because they're like, oh, my gosh, we're, you know, we thought we were so lucky to get this kid to college in the first place. And now he's dropping out. What the heck? And then I went to Western and never looked back. Started my practice at 23, had an incredibly asymmetrical journey through my whole academic career. And here I am close to 20 years later in a profession that to me just does not feel like work. I love what I do every day. My patients, my team, it's just been such a wild ride and I feel so lucky to be here talking to you about it. Well, and you exude that and, and I can see that in your behavior, in all of the marketing that you do, in your leadership. And when I was doing the research on finding out about the hip reconstruction as a teen, it was such a pivotal time in your life. And it made me think of Amelia Earhart. And I remember one of her quotes was the most difficult thing is the decision to act. The, the rest is merely tenacity. And I kept thinking about that quote when I was reading your story. And now that I've hear I've heard you kind of unpack where that came from. What would have happened if you didn't have that difficulty with your hip? Like we always think and wonder back, what if? So it just, it reinforces that on the road to our trajectory of becoming a leader and a heart-centered leader, there's so much growth in those valleys, but you didn't stay there long. You literally pivoted. Someone gave you an option and you were like, 
I'm going to go check that out and look how it's unfolded for you. Yeah. I kind of like to say the chronic pain gave me focus. Right. <laughs> That's a good one. I love that. Mm -hmm. As a case yeah. manager, I, I love that because chronic pain doesn't always give people focus. So no, no, but it, it, it kind of gave me something to sink my teeth into and something to, to, to focus on because, you know, you could imagine having what you thought at the time was going to be the rest of your life sort of stripped away from you early on. I was angry and I was angry when I was, you know, in my, in my late teens that, that, you know, things just weren't going to go the way that I thought they were going to go. And uh, it wasn't really until I, I got that focus that that anger started to dissipate. And, um, you know, I, I was able to channel it better. Well, and, and when I think about the anger, it was still a loss for you. You just mm -hmm. chose to interpret and view it as an opportunity. Mm -hmm that, that mindset piece. And, uh, I love that about you. Like you said, focus, you, yeah. you converted it into focus. Now, my next leadership question, I asked all my guests and mm -hmm. it's the basis of, of the podcast. What imperfections have you brought to your heart centered leadership? <laughs> Being human. You know, I think there's a lot of, a lot of stuff out there that says, Hey, you know what, whatever's going on in your life, don't bring it into your work. Well, that's impossible. I mean, it is just, it's so ridiculous to think that, you know, whatever is affecting you in your personal life is not going to affect your affect and the way that you are when you're at work. And it's, it's dealing with that in an appropriate way. It's being able to surround yourself with a team that you can say, hey guys, I'm not having a good day today. You know, I'm going to need you to do a little bit extra harder to pull, you know, the other people up or to, you know, to do that piece and not be afraid to be able to ask for the help. Well, and you bring up a really good point, and it's often a mood point with leaders that I work with and coach with. Your employees don't make a conscious decision to wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to be in a bad mood when I go into work at Soul Science and talk to Colin. Mm -hmm. How can you segregate? It's exactly what you said. You can't. It's, it's all integrated. And right now, with what we've been going through in the last year, I think it's brought it more to the forefront for us to be even deeper and wider, if you will, with our behavior in how we lead with heart. So such a, such a great being human. I mean, you summed it up in two words, right? Mm -hmm. Now, my third question is, I have both of your books. Uh, the first book you wrote was the plantar fasciitis. One of my favorite words ever, by the way, it's just fun Thank to you. say. Oh, yeah. And the second one was the recent one, the foot strength plan. So share with us the vision to put your expertise and academic and work experience, clinical experience into these books. And I know you have plans for a few more, but tell us where the, the goal and, and how you brought them both to fruition and what your, what your long-term plan is for these books. Well, it really was my desire to go from helping people one-on-one -on -one to, to helping in a larger way, right? To go one on 10, one on 100, one on 1,000. And it's it just to be able to get my, my sort of ideas of treatment out into the world. And whether that, that reaches the average reader who's just struggling through plantar fasciitis, or whether it helps a clinician to be able to develop a better algorithm to help deal with patient treatment, you know, either, either way, it, it's gone in both of those directions. You know, more than 60% of my day is dealing with people who have plantar fasciitis, which is, can be a, a, you know, a debilitating injury for some people. 
And it, it can be very, very disruptive to your quality of life. And so we wanted to give people some simple tools that they could do on their own that are evidence-based to be able to say, hey, you know, you don't need to suffer through this. You don't need to start directly with injections that are painful. There's some really basic stuff you can start with. And, and really what this, the genesis of this was having people come to my office and saying, hey, I've been struggling with this for eight months or nine months. And, you know, well, great, well, what did you do? Well, I've done nothing. The average advice was it'll go away on its own just stop being active. Well, you can imagine in somebody who likes to run or go to the gym or just generally be active and chasing their kids, that's devastating, right? To say, hey, don't do that. And then all of a sudden, because they don't have everything else maybe buttoned up as well as they could be, they start to gain weight and that you know affects their mental health. And so there's just, I've, I've seen the sort of cascading effect of what doing nothing really does to a person. And that's why I wrote these books, was to be able to give people the tools in their hands to be able to take control of their health in a way that they can then talk to their, their professional team to come up with a proper plan. It's, it's really about educating people and empowering them with the best up-to-date evidence so that they can then take it back to their specialist and say, I'd like to try this and, and really just go from there. Well, it all comes down to quality of life, doesn't it? And like you said, you spend your day, people come to you, they want to be happy, but they've got pain, whether it's in their feet, their knees, their hips, their back, it doesn't really matter. But you having the lab, it'll just lead me nicely into my next question. You've got that beautiful location now. I love the name Soul Science. Thank you. I think Louise Karsh had a little play in that. So a little plug for our, for our little Aussie friend, Louise, who is an <laughs> official Aussie now, by the way. Oh, that's great. Nice. 18 clinics. I know you're in 15 cities and towns. I know you have a reputation for creating high quality foot orthotics, but the big thing is, is you have, you have the lab there. So people don't have to wait. They're not going to be in this chronic pain because not only can you, you know, assess and treat, you've got the lab right there to create what they need, which I think is, is a big, big plus. Certainly. Yeah. In the beginning of my career, we worked with an external lab that, you know, the, the wait for some people could be up to three weeks. And that just wasn't, it wasn't enough in my own mind. You know, um, it, it wasn't, it wasn't something where I was going to see somebody and then be able to look them in the eye and say, great, uh, I'll see you back in three weeks. Right. I mean, like what, what can you do to get through in the next three weeks? And we come up with plans. So I decided that, you know, we, we didn't want to make people want to wait more than two or three days um, to be able to, to get their orthotics and, and into a solution that was going to give them comfort if, if an orthotic is what they need. And that's the thing is that I built a business on telling people whether or not they actually need these things because they are way overused by a lot of professionals that um, necessarily... Uh, that don't necessarily always prescribe them when people always need them, if, if you get what I'm trying to say. And so, you know, we really like to see that patient population who can, who can benefit from these things. And it, it really does change their quality of life. Now I'm throwing one more question in here because it's something that I really admire about you. And I think it's the foundation of your being. I think it's who you are as a heart-centered leader. Soul Science has such an outreach on a global level for philanthropy, but I want to start in our own backyard right here in London, Ontario. Mm -hmm. When you purchased Siegel Footwear, 
I can't even tell you how many of my rehab clients were so sad that Mr. Siegel was going to close. I know. And then when you decided to, again, seek an opportunity, have a lunch with him, he's so wonderful and carry that on. I was just like, such an upstanding decision. And then when Brian was going to close runner's choice, and again, you guys met, and then you took that over, you have encompassed every population, all things feet. So it doesn't matter if you're a runner or an Olympian, or just a sports enthusiast, or a senior citizen who, like you said, might have arthritis. You've encompassed to serve all populations, and then you add in your global work with Operation Walk, and I can't even imagine what it feels like to have that level of philanthropy, but you do it with ease, you do it with heart, and I would love for you to just give us a little insight to you know, acquiring both businesses and bringing Jeff and Brian along with you on that. But just when you travel to places like Ecuador and Guatemala, that is all encompassing to me because you're taking your education and giving it back to people again, who you can relate to, who may have one leg shorter than the other. And you know, they could never afford to be able to come to you or have that level of service or have that product made, where does that bring you to? And how did you engrave these kind of business acquisitions and that philanthropy work? How did you engrave that in your heart? Well, it started, it started in the beginning at home. So we actually have a program locally that will, that will donate our services and time to the people who are at highest risk with the lowest ability to be able to, to pay us. And so we realized that what we do in being uh, not private healthcare is the wrong way of putting it, but fee for service, that not everybody can afford custom orthotics. And so we, we decided early that part of our model was going to include being able to give back into the communities that have supported us. And so that really started first here in London in the surrounding area. And so we, we have a program that uh, physicians can access. And so they'll, they'll typically know who their patients are with the greatest need, and they can then refer in to that, that program. And uh, we, we have kind of a set amount that, that we do per month. And uh, I can't tell you the, 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 the number of people that we've seen and the, the differences we get to make with those people are, are really close and near and dear to my heart. So um, I, I do enjoy all the time that we spend in that program. And that, that kind of blossomed from there into even more philanthropy work, whether it's donating back to the LHSC Foundation or to Western or being involved in Operation Walk, um, giving back to the, to the people who, who are able to, to, you know, or the communities that support us have been, have been just a phenomenal. Operation Walk changed my life. I mean, going to Guatemala first and and seeing the difference that we can make in a in a community of people who, again, don't have access to care and uh, some of the some of the injuries that we would see down there are things that you just don't see here in in North America. So the the first time I went down there, it was it was incredibly eye opening as I had never experienced that before, and. To be able to again, you know, take my knowledge and build a an eight or a nine centimeter 
lift for someone with a leg length discrepancy from a gunshot wound or from um, a congenital malformation of their hip is uh, is life changing. And so the once you do it once, you want to do a lot more of it. And so I, I was I was lucky to be at a at a dinner with the the founding surgeons of Operation Walk, and I said, hey, this is what I can I can add to the mix. And they said, well, that might be a, a good addition. And we we tried it out, and off we went. And it's been about ten years now, and a number of missions, and the number of people that we're able to see back from those missions is just. It's nice to be able to have them walk in and and see that they're doing well and that they're actually able to go out and you know hold down a job now and be able to to get their families back on track and, and do these things it's just been incredible well and i can see that in all the work that you do and i can't even imagine the depths and the level of of how that makes you feel and again it's just it's how you, 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 you made that decision to pivot and, and change based on your own injury and, and your own quality of life. And, and here you are now on the other side of that, that uh, spectrum, changing other people's life on a global mm-hmm. level. And it's, it's phenomenal, Colin. You know, the, the number of people that when I say to them, you know, when I look at them and say, I get what you're going through, and they, they look at me like, no, you don't, you're a kid. Um, and I said, no, no, I mean, I, I've already had a hip reconstruction, two of them actually. And they, they, they look at you like, oh my gosh, you do know what I'm going through. This is, this is crazy. And it just, it changes the whole thing, right? And so when you can look at someone and go like, yeah, I get it. And this is why, you know, we're going to do the things that we're going to do with you. Um, not to say that it's perfect all the time, but, you know, we, we, we try as best as we can. Well, and I think coming from a medical rehab background myself, when when you can look someone in the eye and have that relatability, mm-hmm. what, what you foster is a deeper level of trust and rapport because mm-hmm. they know you're a doctor and you can do it. But when you say me too, they're like, really? Yeah. It brings a whole other dynamic to, you know, the doctor patient relationship, which is amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm going to switch to our fab four now. Four sure. fun questions about Dr. Colin. We just want to know what's sitting on the top of that brilliant mind of yours. <laughs> First question. Tell us something we don't know about you. I make watches. You do. I've actually seen some of your watches. I thought you were oh, going to, you I, thought, I thought you were going to, I thought you were going to tell me about your fabulous whiskey collection or something, but you do make watches and I where could, I could do that too. I mean, I, I know so, you're a man yeah. of many talents. Where did that craft come from and who did you learn it from? You know, I've been a collector for a number of years and uh, a bunch of years ago, I decided, Hey, you know, you can learn pretty much anything on the internet these days. What about watchmaking? And so I, I bought a course from a, a, place in California and they send you a kit and it's a bunch of online tutorials. And I, man, I messed up a lot of watches in the beginning because it's an incredibly fine art. I call it my form of meditation though, because to, to place a, a, a hand that's 0.3 of a millimeter on a post, you need to be pretty still. And uh, yeah, so I, I just started doing that. And then for my 40th birthday, I, everyone kept asking me what I wanted. And I, I didn't want anything. I wanted a, an experience basically. And so I decided I'm gonna build a watch. And so I started taking some more courses from uh, the ACWI in Chicago and, you know, kind of up my watchmaking game a bit. 
and uh, now I now I have this little this little hobby watchmaking uh, thing in my basement, and uh, it's a lot of fun. It really is. Well, I'm glad you touched on that because I know when someone is a vivid visionary like you are, they don't realize the level of thought that goes into everything you do in your life, whether it's personal or business related or growth, whatever that is. And it's always interesting to me to see how people quiet their mind and, and have that focus that you talk about. And I can see where it's such a high level activity from a thinking perspective, but the enjoyment you get out of it. And then when you're done, you can wear it and people will comment and they can say, where did you buy it? And then you get to say, I made it. And I can only imagine the conversations. Oh yeah. Yeah. The looks on people's faces, um, because we you know what I make is, is it's, it's, it's rather big and it's really out there. And a lot of the times if people are interested in watches, they go, Oh, that's really unique. I said, yeah, cause I made it. And then they look at you like you have 15 heads because they've never heard that at a party before. And uh, yeah, it, it really does change the conversation. So fun. Now, I know you've also written a children's book called A Special <laughs> Thank You. Yeah. And I know that you're attributing it to your beautiful son, Lander, and your daughter. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I would love to hear where this idea came from, where you're at with the process. Did you did you get a cover and what's your hope for it? Well, so I wrote that book. It was uh, probably the big, oof, man, let me think about this here. Um, it was the beginning early of last year. No, it was even before the pandemic, actually. It was probably the summer of 2019. Man, things have just gone by so quickly this last year and a half. Um, and it was because, you know, we needed to teach our kids about being grateful and saying thank you. And, and you know, really just a gratitude component, right? Being thankful for what you have and being able to make sure that you can tell people thank you uh, and that you mean it. And so I thought, you know, well, what, what better way to leave a lasting impression than to write a book for them and something that they'll be able to hand down to their kids. And it'll be a little piece of me that I'll be able to, to hand on to them that they can then pass on to their kids. And uh, it was right around the time when my, when my father passed away, when I, I got serious about doing that. And I thought as a legacy piece, it would be kind of cool uh, from, from that, that standpoint. Uh, it's with Friesen Press right now, so I'm, I'm really hoping it comes out by May, and uh, it'll be out on Amazon and Friesen Press and a couple of other places. And, you know, where I hope it goes is I, I really just hope that it gives people some enjoyment and, you know, it makes it easy to talk about saying thank you with their kids. And uh, from a visual expression, uh, I, what was a lot of fun is that it's all based on my family. And so I, get, I found this amazing artist that does children's book illustrations. And I gave him a bunch of pictures of our family. And there's a, a couple of little Easter eggs in there too. So like, for instance, my son absolutely loves this one restaurant in town. And so the logo is on the chef's hat and the chef's stuff. And, you know, there's a bunch of different watches in there and just, you know, things that are relevant to us but that the average reader probably won't pick up on. And so just, just fun you know, that uh, uh, as we go through it. I've, I've actually written another one for them as well, um, which is all about what to do when you feel overwhelmed. And we'll, we'll, see, we'll see where it goes. I love the alignment though, about wanting it to be part of your legacy. And I'm sure it had some heartfelt compassion and, and love for when you lost your dad as well. I didn't realize it was at the same time that you did that, but 
just such a fun thing for Lander and Adeline to grow up and see that their dad wrote this book. And I think the one that's forthcoming is really going to help given the times, because it's been difficult for children of all ages and, and parents too, uh, to kind of navigate through these unprecedented times. So look forward to seeing that. Do you have my third question? Do you have a word or a mantra or an aspiration for 2021? And would you share with us what that is? <laughs> Hope, you know, it, uh, it, it really is. I'm just, I'm, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful in turnaround. I'm hopeful that people will be gentle with one another. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm clinging to hope right now because I, I, I need it. Yeah. Personally, you know, it's, it's, it's been challenging as a leader to get through this stuff and through shutdowns and through the inconsistencies and all of, all of the things. So I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to see better days uh, soon. Absolutely. I'm with you. My word is joy, but it's right in alignment with hope and mm -hmm. just keeping that light at the end of the tunnel. It's, it's there. It can be dim some days, but it's still there. Mm -hmm. Okay. My last question Every time I turn around, I'm seeing you work on something, create something, hit another goal. Tell me about this Ironman you're training for and how your staff is involved. Is this a competition amongst the soul science team? Is it a team building? Is it let's get rid of these COVID pounds? What made you decide to train because I know that takes a lot of tenacity and grit which I know you have but where did that decision come from and and share us where you are in the process well so 18 months ago I had two really bad tears in my hamstring and I've been you know in physio two or three days a week for you know 18 months uh, trying to rehab this and for a lot of people it can be a sport ending injury and I decided early that, you know, I was going to do as much as I possibly could to, to not make that happen. And uh, that, that's where the genesis of doing this Ironman as a, as, a, as a goal to train towards. So it's actually, it's a relay half Ironman that I'm doing. And so I'm doing the cycling component and then two people on my staff, one's doing the swim, one's doing the bike. And I, I really do hope that these events will happen this year and that we're able to train for more of them. I would love to make it a full event with the, with the rest of the staff. The problem is that uh, we're not seeing a lot of events happen right now. So uh, we'll see, you know, where, where it comes from that, you know, from, from my end, it really was just to throw me into something that I could do and not really have to focus too much on the gyms being open and, you know, everything else. Cause I, I can train for cycling in my basement uh, or out on the road. It's not swimming dependent for, for me on that end. Because uh, really to, to train for these things, if you're not a swimmer, which I am not, uh, well, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say that. I'm, I'm, I'm not a proficient swimmer. You wouldn't be able to say, Hey, go swim four kilometers and me be okay with that. I can do 500 meters or a thousand meters. That would be fine. But to do that kind of a distance uh, without hurting myself would require a gym and, a, and, and some feedback. So that's where that came from was just wanting to be able to have something to focus on so that this tear didn't become something that was going to halt me from being able to ski with my kids and just enjoy being active with my kids later in my life. Absolutely. And just, it's so aligned with 
going all the way back to when you were 17 and it's almost like a full circle moment. And like you said, that is an injury that would take most people out. So I think, I think the consistency in the message of this interview today is tenacity and grit at a deep level will always keep you focused or refocused and moving in the right direction. It's very true. I was trying to think of a quote that I wanted to end the podcast that would really encompass who you are, Colin. And it's a quote by Melinda Gates. And I think it sums you up quite beautifully. And she says, philanthropy is not about the money. It's about using whatever resources you have at your fingertips and applying them to improving the world. And in my eyes, that's what I think you do. Thank you so very much. I, uh, I knew this was going to be a delightful conversation. So thank you for joining me today on, on the podcast. And I look forward to following your book adventures and your athletic training and all the other goodness you bring into the world and wish you nothing but continued success. Well, thank you so very much. And I look forward to seeing you in the future. And this is Deb Crow. If you like the show, we'd love for you to rate us and give us a review. We're going to put all the information below for Dr. Collins so you can find where he's at at Soul Science and what he's got going on globally and the impact he continues to make. So thanks for joining me. This is Deb Crow, and we look forward to seeing you next time on Imperfect, the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. <laughs>